The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, the year is 1886, and our hero is 26 years old. He's a practicing physician working in Moscow, helping people heal. And in his spare time, he's become a one-man publishing phenomenon, turning out character sketches, humor pieces, articles, and yes, short stories at an incredible pace. He's on his way to being a celebrated literary figure, on his way to becoming the great Anton Chekhov. But for now, he's burning his candle at both ends. On the one hand, he's taking care of his family. His parents and siblings have become almost entirely dependent on his income. Personally, he's going through what your typical healthy 26-year-old male goes through. Is love somewhere out there? Is marriage? Are those things necessary, desirable, fated? What is my destiny as a doctor, a human being, a good son, a resident of Russia, and a writer? It's not every young man who draws the attention of Leo Tolstoy, who says, Who are you? How do you get this done? I admire your writing. What's next for you? It's an incredible year, and for our guest today, rich material for a book. Chekhov Becomes Chekhov with Bob Blaisdell, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here to join us today. This is a good day. Thanks be to you for giving us some of your time today. We have a good show in return for you. Chekhov becomes Chekhov. As you know, I don't like to go too long in life without spending some time with Chekhov. I'll say Shakespeare's in that category too, and the Beatles and a handful of others. I take breaks. Okay, six months maybe. Time to take in some other things, and then I start to get a little itchy. Yes, all this is good, but what about the best? Where are my besties? I didn't fully explore them the last time around. It's like exercising. I can do my dalliances with some other machines, some other weights, some other stretches, but I come back to the Stairmaster, the treadmill, the push-ups, the planks. These aren't exotic. These aren't forays into something new and unusual. This isn't is it Pilates for me. It's yoga. The old standard. Does any of that make sense to you? Maybe food is better. How about that? I can enjoy all kinds of food. I have a great exploratory palate. I go through stretches of Magellan-like forays into recipes and spices and newfangled flavors, towering gastronomic achievements. Great Long stretches of one gustatory discovery after another. And then there's pizza. Home. So, with that in mind, let's bring out our guest. Bob Blaisdell wrote a book called Creating Anna Karenina. Speaking of pizza and home, that's my sweet spot too. This kind of book has become a kind of specialty of his. He's a professor of English in the CUNY system, and he takes these authors, he reads their diaries and letters from a particular time, 
discovers who they were as they were discovering themselves and their characters and their art. Not in that literary, biographical, detective way of, aha, here's a beloved character, so let's try to find the real-life person and, and look... Here she is wearing a green dress to a ball, and here's the character who wears a green dress to a ball. Dots connected. Hurrah. Well, who cares about that, really? But here's a man or woman. Here's an artist in the middle of the artistic process creating something that has stood the test of time. It's been loved and admired for a hundred years. It's been meaningful to people. Here's an artwork a literary gem that the world has found edifying and inspirational, an artist who has earned our respect, someone we want to learn more about, and here they are doing what they're doing. This isn't ex post facto analysis of a genius. This is seeing that person make choices that lead them down the genius path. Here we see them doing what they're doing, We see the choices they're making. We see how they're living, the context they're in, what they themselves are experiencing. And we see, well, how did they draw upon all that if they did? Or were they inventing and imagining if that's what happened? What were they seeing in life? How did they experience its contours, its highs and lows? Was it a bad marriage that colored their world in this period? Or an affair that lit it up? brightly, or money woes that sent them reaching for the bottle or the pen, physical ailments that taught them the pleasures and pains of the poppy. (laughs) I couldn't resist that one, though it's a little fanciful, but you know what I mean. These writers were human beings, first and foremost. That's what we love about them, that they lived hard and well and thought thoughts and felt emotions and translated all that into stories and poems and novels that make us think and make us feel. We know more about the world because of them and their art. We know more more about their art by knowing more about them, perhaps. I say perhaps because that might not always be the case with Tolstoy. And now with Chekhov, it is. Thanks in large part to our guest today and his books. Bob Blaisdell joins us after this. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right. Factor, and they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is author Bob Blaisdell, professor of English at the City University of New York's Kingsborough College. Professor Blaisdell is also a frequent book reviewer and the editor of many literature and poetry collections, including a collection of Chekhov's love stories. He's here today to talk about a previous book, Creating Anna Karenina, and his latest work, Chekhov Becomes Chekhov, The Emergence of a Literary Genius. Bob Blaisdell, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much, Jack. So you've written books about Anna Karenina and now about Chekhov. Where were you in life when you first started reading these classic Russian authors? I was a freshman at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I was in a program called the College of Creative Studies. And the provost of that college, uh, a critic named Marvin Mudrick, told us, his writing students, that if we wanted to be writers, we had to read this book called Anna Karenina by mm. some guy named Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. And that summer, I read it twice. The first time while I was in Mexico with a friend. And the second time, at the end of the summer, when I had uh, mononucleosis, I read it again. Mm. And since then, I've read it maybe 25 times in English. And uh, this is my fourth time now I'm reading it in Russian. Wow. And I read that you learned Russian in middle age just so you could read Anna Karenina in the original. Yes, because I, like everybody who hasn't got that language and new translations come out, you're told that this is the real Anna Karenina. This is this translation. You will really get it. I'd read every translation of Anna Karenina. And I thought maybe inspired by a friend of mine who had, who had started in his 40s. But I decided I could, being a language teacher, I thought I could learn it. It was extremely difficult. If I'd known how hard it was, I wouldn't have done it. But um, <laughs> Right. <laughs> it, it was like with so many things. If you knew how hard it was going to be, you couldn't have done it. So, Yeah, like uh, I'll put starting a literature podcast in that category. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I was going to ask you, what 
appeal to you about Russian literature in general, but I think actually I should ask what appealed to you about Anna Karenina, 25 times reading it in the original. That's about as much as anyone has probably ever read any novel of that size. Yeah, it's a mystery to me. Too. <laughs> and, um, but one thing, I mean, every time I read it, it seems, oh, uh, well, corny, it sounds like love. Yeah. And there's something new or, and things that, that I, things I know that I responded to before, it still seems like, no, I'm just noticing it for the first time. Right. But then I'll check, I'll check my notes and I realize, no, I, I've written about that passage. Yeah. Um, it, so I, that's a mystery. It's the mystery of how it keeps being new and meaningful and different parts remaining wonderful and other parts um, getting tedious. This is partly sometimes in Russian where I'm having mm -hmm. to look up a bunch of farming terms or right. things having to do with clothing. And that slows me down, but it's a mystery. And I was worried even that maybe learning Russian and reading it for the first time in Russian would break the charm, mm. uh, but, but it didn't. It, it didn't. Do you feel like, I mean, when I reread a book, let's say two or three times, I can really notice myself being a different person when I read it and I'll read it and say, Oh, I remember reading it when I was 18 or 20 and where I was. And I have kind of an overlay of nostalgia for that time period and also who I was when I was reading it. And I'll notice things like being drawn to the, the younger people and not understanding the older people as well, or just different different things that I can tell I'm a different person when I read it. I'm wondering if you've read it 25 times, it sounds a lot more continuous than that. Are you able to mark periods in your life like that? Or has it just been kind of a constant presence? Um, that's, that's such an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that, but I can't, I, I don't think there's been a three year period where I, where I <laughs> yeah. haven't read it. You're the uh, proverbial uh, frog in the boiling water going up degree by degree. I know that when I read it first many times, I didn't have complicated feelings about Anna's husband, Karinin. Mm. And I was, I was a little worried when sometime in my 30s and when I was married that I started to understand him. Mm. And then when I was doing the research for this book and reading the original drafts and how Tolstoy worked it up from something that he didn't, it was just going to be a frivolous little novella. And at that point, it was about Karenin. It was about poor Karenin yeah. who had this bluesy, silly, silly woman, uninteresting, even unattractive wife who cheated on him and dies for yeah. somehow. Right. Um, and, and I thought, okay, there, there's something, there is something in Karenin. And it took me a long time because he is so unsympathetic to be sympathetic to him. Yeah. Um, still, still that worried me. That's interesting because not only does it seem to say that there is room to be empathetic with Karenin, it, 
it suggests that Tolstoy at some point must have breathed some life into Anna and to have had some understanding for her that he didn't have at the outset. And so there was there was a mystery that is still a mystery. One day, Tolstoy woke up and went back to work on the manuscript early on. And he the breakthrough for him and what what made the book was she was now beautiful and the most conscious person in the book. Oh, yeah. She became super conscious and beautiful. And this is connected, I think, to his, his own uh, inclination at the time towards suicide. Mm. Here is somebody else who has everything. And yet, and Tolstoy at the time when he started the novel, he was the happy family. Mm. He had the happy family of six children. There'd been no infant death. This is very unusual. Yeah. In the 1860s and 1870s. And then in the course of writing the book, they lost uh, three children. Oh. Had a couple. And he was suicidal. And his identification with Anna, even though he didn't take away anything, well, he did take something away from Karenin. He took away the sympathy from Karenin. Mm. And instead we get his identification with, with Anna. Yeah, right. It feels like a, a really modern uh, shift where we see that all the time with rethinking of plots or characters and people will say, well, you know, let's, let's tell this from the point of view of the mad woman in the attic, or let's think about what it would have been like uh, to be the, I'm thinking of the, the series Cobra Kai, where they say, you know, let's sure we look at the karate kid as the hero, but what about the guy who got kicked in the face and lost? What was his story like? And it almost seems like Tolstoy maybe would have had the obvious move of uh, imagining things from the point of view of the husband and then said, you know what, it would be pretty interesting to think about this from the point of view of the woman who did want to be underneath that train. Yes. Yes, that's good. And one reason he was able to do that was because it wasn't the work he wanted to be doing. And it took him a long time to get going on it. And then he kept having breaks from it. So he had long, even though it's, it is an enormous book, he spent more time in the four years not working on it, I mean, periods of months, than the months where he did work on it. Mm. He was able to rethink it in the midst of writing it. Yeah. Okay. Before we get to Chekhov, I wanted to ask you something about Tolstoy and the nature of omniscience. It seems to be that an omniscient narrator is so present for us in a way they seem like they're almost our friend or or someone we understand but Tolstoy who's kind of the king of omniscience is complex and he's hard to classify and then it kind of made me think well why do I think that an omniscient narrator is is so easily understood God is omniscient and he's not easy to describe or know and all of the time you've spent with Tolstoy and his fiction did you come away from the process thinking that you've gotten to know Tolstoy or do you still find him mysterious? That's very interesting. And I like that you brought up God's omniscience and Tolstoy's because that's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. That he knows. 
yeah. need somebody. So I, I have just maybe just an anecdote to answer about the mysteriousness of Tolstoy, and it's it's embarrassing. Um, after I'd read Anna Karenina a few times, and maybe I was 20, 21, I read a literary biography. I think one of the first literary biographies I read. I was so busy reading the literature, I wasn't reading biography. And it was called Tolstoy and His Wife by a Russian named Tikhon Polner. And I read it and was fascinated. And I remember waking up one morning when I was around 21, and I was thinking about Tolstoy, my friend. Mm. And then I realized he's not my friend. I don't, I, the biography made him a person to me and he hasn't seemed mysterious to me ever since then. Mm. And I've been to his, his houses many times and I've walked in his footsteps and I'm, I'm ashamed that I don't find him mysterious. I would have found him completely intimidating, but I don't find him mysterious as a personality. Right. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break and then we will turn to the great Anton Chekhov and see if you feel the same way about him. Okay, we're back with Professor Bob Blaisdell, author of Chekhov Becomes Chekhov. So you focus this book on two years in Chekhov's life in particular, 1886 to 1887. What was happening to Chekhov then? Not so much was happening to him as he was doing and he had opportunities Mm. and the need to do things. Yeah. His birthday is January 16th. Um, sometimes it's posted as 17th, but that's his name day, his Russian name day. So he was 25, but he'd just come back from Petersburg. He was living in Moscow. He'd been living in Moscow since he was 19 and going to medical school. Mm. And he found out that his pen name was very famous, Antosha Chahonte, in Petersburg, in literary circles, mm. being read. Mm-hmm. And he knew that he would have opportunities not just to write for the comic magazines. And he, he was writing serious once-a-week stories for a, for a newspaper. Uh, that had just started, though, in, in 1885. And that's what people were reading and responding to. Hmm. Anyway, he found out he was, he was well-known. And right. uh, at the beginning of the year, he was offered a chance to write for a prominent newspaper, somewhat right-wing newspaper in their literary section. And he agreed partly because they would pay him for one story, what he was getting paid for 10 or 12 pieces for the, for the comic magazine, primary comic magazine for the newspaper. He was a doctor. Yeah. He'd been a doctor, a licensed doctor since the summer of 84. And he saw patients at, the family apartment, which he, he paid for. He was supporting his younger siblings and his parents. Yeah. Uh, he was not making money as a doctor. He knew how to make money. He'd been writing, encouraged by his oldest brother to write stories for comic 
magazines in Moscow and Petersburg. He needed the money. He was always trying to move the family up. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he published an astonishing amount, 64 short stories and a number of other humor pieces and articles. And as you said, he was treating patients six days a week and making house calls. Does it feel like he's burning the candle at both ends or was he possessed with a superabundance of energy or does exhaustion set in at some point? Exhaustion did set in. Maybe people who are, you know, really dogged know this. There's a kind of adrenaline that comes with the effort and the amazement that you can actually get so much done, but the exhaustion did hit. And so there's a dramatic decrease in output after these two years. Mm, Yeah. And where he went back to what a normal great literary writer would be doing. Right. You know, 10 stories a year and a play. Rather impressive anyway. Yeah, right. But he did burn the candle at both ends. Mm-hmm. And one reason I, I focused on these years was because in trying to read Anna Karenina in Russian, I was reading Chekhov in Russian as well. Mm. These were... These were smaller units that I could handle and master. I would read The Lady with the Dog. I would yeah. listen to The Lady with the Dog in Russian, and I have phrases in there. Chekhov was easier than Tolstoy, and there was a pleasure I, I could notice more quickly. But I kept noticing in Russian editions that, uh, and they would arrange them by topic in some of the Russian editions, right. um, that this story is from 1886. And then, oh, this good story is also from 1886. This story is from 1887. How could there be so many stories from these two years? Yeah. And it's because he wrote so many stories in those two years. Yeah. You mentioned that he said it was kind of like the secret, which was that he had written so much so quickly and he said the idea was to have as few failures as possible in fiction writing or in order not to be so sensitive to failures it almost sounds like he got a lot of bad writing out of his system or he just wrote so much that he didn't consider any one particular story to be so precious that he had to agonize over it or it seems like it was really important for his later work that he had this period of just uh, racing everything through and, and printing it and letting the chips fall where they may. Yeah, it seems to me complicated because so many of the the great stories in these two years seem to me just as great as mm. the mm-hmm. greater later stories. You're right. You're absolutely right. There's no preciousness. You, you're on deadline. You're going to finish this story and you're going to write it to size. That was one of his beefs with his humor writer magazine editor, was he had to write to size. Mm. And so he, the, the story was developing, ah, he, he knew he had to cut it off. Yeah, right. And that frustrated him. And so being able to write for the literary newspaper, for their literary section, where he had unlimited space, that was a kind of freedom to him. Mm. He didn't know. He didn't know where it would go. He didn't work out most of his stories before he wrote them. He trusted the pressure, and uh, many writers know this phenomenon of something comes to you because it, you have to. And so, for these two years, he trusted 
that things would come out because they had to. And he thought he would not be a writer the rest of his life. He thought he would be a doctor. And uh, that's why he uh, had used a, a pen name, various pen names, until the, the newspaper, prominent newspaper editor told him, no, you got to use your real name. Mm. You got to use your real name. So that's how partly he became Anton Chekhov. The, the editor told him, no, we got to have your name. He was an artist. And he would lecture his older brother and many other writers about their need to take things seriously mm. and not be sloppy and not, not write to form, be true to how life actually is. And so he raced and trusted his feet, just like, you know, an athlete. It's like, don't think, just plunge as fast as you can. He never, he never was protective of particular uh, works or stories. He was critical of all of them. Mm. Uh, he spent three years at the end of his short life uh, collecting his work and rejecting, I think I think he rejected three or four hundred stories from his collected edition. Wow, yeah. But, and from these years, he, he rejected maybe a, a quarter of them. Uh-huh. When you were reading this in Russian, it must have, the way you've described it, I know one of the things that's so striking about Chekhov is his efficiency and how quickly he's able to create a character or set up a story. And that must be something that you especially appreciated as you were in the process of learning Russian yourself, how quickly he is at getting to the point. That's right. Yes. And that was one of the great pleasures. When, yeah. Yes, struggling with learning enough Russian, but I could read, I start reading a Chekhov story and I had it in a few sentences. I had context. I had a personality. Somebody said that you could hear Chekhov smiling as he wrote. Mm. And the difference between reading Chekhov in Russian and English is I'm, I'm maybe not one to, to speak since my Russian is not good. It's rough and tumble, but uh, you can feel him. You can feel the smile and you can hear the the restrained laugh as he's writing. There's a kind of bubbling. But the immediacy of, of some of the stories. Could I read the beginning of one of his one of his stories from sure. these years? Sure. This was something one of my discoveries was that he was writing to season. He was writing to to holidays. He was writing mm. depending on the time of year he was most of the stories fit for that year. That was one of the revelations of just reading his stories in order, not in the order that the great translator Constance Garnett put them for us English readers. She kind of arranged them like a bouquet. And so but they're from various years. And so you don't get a sense of the year. This was a Easter short story called The Letter. I'll read just the first paragraph. The clerical superintendent of the district, his reverence father, Fyodor Orlov, a handsome, well-nourished man of 50, grave and important as he always was, with an habitual expression of dignity that never left his face, was walking to and fro in his little drawing room, extremely exhausted and thinking intensely about the same thing. When would his visitor go? <laughs> the thought worried him and did not leave him for a minute. The visitor, Father Anastasi, 
The priest of one of the villages near the town had come to him three hours before on some very unpleasant and dreary business of his own, had stayed on and on, was now sitting in the corner at a little round table with his elbow on a thick account book, and apparently had no thought of going. So it was getting on for nine o'clock in the evening. Right. There you get the, is this the, this the hero? Is Father Fjodor yeah. Orloff the hero? I don't know. Right. I want to know why is why is he getting so impatient, but also why does the guy want to stay? Yes. Right. What is I, it? <laughs> I never I never read a situation story. I never read a story where it's like, when will this guy leave? Yeah. Right. Even though it's a very familiar feeling yes. uh in our lives. Sometimes people are waiting for us to leave. And sometimes we're waiting for them to leave. Yeah. But I've not seen it treated. Right. And sometimes it's because they're, uh, they lack some social graces and they're just people who overstay their welcome. And it's something that we have to then deal with and, and figure out how to dispatch them politely. But sometimes it's because yep. they really need something that we are supposed to supply and can't or are unwilling to, or it really does. You're right. It's a very familiar situation, and it can be something that's a little bit mundane, but it could also be something that's very profound. And this story, which is which is comical, and like a lot of his short stories, set up very much like a play. We're in only two places, essentially, through the story. Mm. This story, the composer Tchaikovsky so loved that uh, it led to those two meeting and becoming friendly, not exactly friends, but becoming very friendly. Mm. And so it's a comic story and full of surprises. And the hero turns out to be, this is not much of a spoiler alert, because turns out to be the dissolute father Anastasi. Mm. He's the one with the the moral, this obviously difficult and unpleasant in many ways man. Has, has the moral word, which is also complicated, being that he delivers the moral word while trying to cage a drink. Mm, right. <laughs> okay, so I'm interested in this, and this seems to be at the, the genesis of your book, is taking these stories, which are often arranged as you know comic pieces, love stories, or in groups like that by theme, <laughs> And instead, you're reading them chronologically, and you were marrying that with a look at Chekhov's biography, the letters he was writing and so on at that time. And so as you were melding these stories with Chekhov's personal life, what were you finding? Because what's interesting is you start your book with a couple of quotes from Chekhov that seem to say basically... Hey, if you're looking for me, don't look in my characters. That's not the right place to find me. And don't try to don't try to to take any of my characters and say, oh, this is a stand-in for what I believe or my position on this or something. And yet you sort of say that Chekhov was coming out of these stories, that you were understanding him and his life, and you felt like you were in his company in reading the stories. So how do we untangle these two lines of thought? Right. He did assert he's not in those stories, but I quote him making those assertions partly because I did and do assert the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I love Chekhov. 
And um, I don't want to disagree with him, but I think it's also just a, a way of showing him as an artist. In some way, he needed to, these are not me. And he, he often gave advice to other writers that if something you know painful or dramatic happened to them, don't have it happen to a character just like you. Right. Your age, a doctor who works in Moscow and lives with his family supporting them, and you can kind of view the character as a clear stand-in for Chekhov himself. Yeah. So, no, have it happen to an old lady. Mm. Have it happen to a little boy. Yeah. It's so fun to read Chekhov and to see and feel the sympathy going in different directions. Right. So one of the characters in that story, the letter, he sounds very similar at points to Chekhov and his brother. And I think as Chekhov sensed that himself, he made this character uh, denounce fishing, which was Chekhov's favorite (laughs) go-to hobby, the way he could relax. Right. And so people that seemingly were like him, a doctor, would have an unpleasant manner. People who shared characteristics with Chekhov would would also have things that were completely different and unsympathetic to Chekhov himself. And then characters who were mostly unpleasant, we understand because in in some some way they were a lot like Chekhov. Mm. And in writing around the, the seasons, I'd be reading his letters and, oh, the weather is terrible. And then in the story he's writing that week, oh, the weather was terrible. Yeah. So the weather and the events, when he's having love problems, there's a lot of love problem stories. Mm-hmm. When he's having money problems, and some biographers, I mean, he was 26 years old, 27 years old, carrying the whole family on his back. There was a couple of biographers who, like, What's wrong with him? Why can't he manage his money? And I was, on the other hand, thinking, this guy is amazing. Yeah, right. He's supporting his family, trying to make some room for them, trying to give them a kind of middle-class life that the father, a bankrupt merchant, hadn't been able to do. I admired him. And also, that seemed familiar, especially for people in their 20s, just trying to manage. So he's a doctor. He's a great writer. He's also supposed to be a great economist. I didn't didn't blame him for that. Right. You mentioned the love problems. During this period, he also, he got engaged and then unengaged, right? So I'm guessing you could see traces of those ups and downs as you were reading stories that would have coincided with different hallmark points in his relationship. Yes. I mean, he worked hard so that we wouldn't make those associations, but some of them are obvious. And again, I feel like when a friend is telling you a a very deep, complicated personal story, but it's not happening actually to them, that's about a friend of theirs, and you know it's actually about him. Mm. I sometimes feel like that with Chekhov's stories. He couldn't have told the story if it had to be actually about himself. His letters are wonderful, but he didn't make confessions in his letters. His letters are wonderfully entertaining, uh, very always personal, and they're only focused on one person, the one person he's talking to. That was part of, it seems to me, his, his privacy. He didn't write kind of general letters, except when he was finally on a kind of vacation in the spring of 1887, when he was writing to his whole family. 
So I guess there's a, a couple of different things writers could do. And maybe you could tell me if I have the correct impression here. So one thing might be somebody who's going through, let's say, a divorce or something would be in pain. And they would say, I've got to get this onto the page because I need to examine my feelings and I got to tell my story. And this is interesting. I feel it strongly in and I can make great fiction out of it. But it comes from this sort of need I have to get my feelings that I'm feeling onto the page. And then another way, which seems to be closer to Chekhov, would be to sort of say, you know, I am, as a writer, I am exploring all sides of humanity. And isn't this an interesting feeling to analyze? Isn't this a part of humanity that would be worth exploring and sharing with others and would make good fiction and kind of to float above it a little bit when it comes to writing about it. And and so it doesn't necessarily have to be the exact details of what happened to him. So he's kind of telling his version of it, but he's looking at it almost in the abstract as, well, now I'm going to write about frustration or now I'm going to to transmute this feeling I had of rejection or this feeling I had of guilt, and I'll put it onto these other characters so I can kind of examine all sides of this particular facet of life that I'm interested in exploring. I think that's very good. I think you're right. That's more of his feeling in some way, like a, like a scientist, mm. like a doctor. Mm-hmm. He's, he's seeing this as the symptoms of human beings. Yeah. And of animals and of children. Mm-hmm. So he wrote a few stories in these two years from the point of view of animals and little children, children from like the age of two and eight months to about 10. So I think you're right. He liked to make this distinction to his older brother, who also wrote stories about the difference between objective and subjective. Mm-hmm. His brother poured himself out mm-hmm. personally and with complaints and also with stereotypes and mm. and obvious unfoldings of plot. And he would scold his brother up and down. He was a very polite man, but with his brothers, he was abrupt and very critical and very expressive and loving. He was most revealing in his letters to his older brother, mm. who had a drinking problem, had the problems that Chekhov and restrained himself from displaying um, self-pity. Um, after all, Chekhov and his closest brother, who was a painter, they, they both had tuberculosis from the time Chekhov was 24. Mm. One of the biographers said that the painter brother, Nikolai, uh, he, he just gave up. Mm. And Chekhov, he knew uh, all the doctors who've written about Chekhov, say, from the symptoms, he knew from the time he got it, when he was 24, that he had it. He did not admit it publicly until he was 37, but he, he knew. Yeah. And he decided he better hustle and get things done. Right. So for someone who is like him and is, is taking almost a, an anthropological view of human beings, including of himself, that's right. Did he come across to his friends and his loved ones as being aloof and remote for that? Or did they view him as warm? Or, I mean, it, you could see where someone like that might almost come across as kind of preachy or holier than thou. But I don't get the sense that that's how Chekhov was in his interactions with others. You're right. He wasn't like that with others. He had 
many girlfriends. And he had the, the kind of play engagement. I mean, I think they bo- were both playing around when they got engaged. Mm. And then it took a long time to kind of unravel that for both of them. Mm. But with his girlfriends and lovers, uh, I think almost without exception, they remained friends. Mm. And I think that says a lot. Yeah. And some of the women complained about his restraint, but some of the restraint was he was only this deeply involved. He didn't fall in love uh, until he was 39. He didn't kind of lose himself into actual love until then. Yeah. And that's you know, was determined to marry the, the actress Olga. So his friends, he was very jokey. In the letters, you see how familiar and and kidding he was. And his family, he was the only one who never threw tantrums. He was the only one who, who <laughs> didn't, he was the only one who completely could restrain himself. Yeah. He had lots of models. If, if you've grown up in a, in a chaotic household as he did, six children, his father having to flee Tagenbrook, this, this town on the Sea of Azov, fleeing his creditors. It was a chaotic family. And Chekhov was the steady one. He, even though he was the third child, he was the steady one. He didn't, he didn't have a drinking problem. He didn't have an anger problem. He made sure his younger siblings got education. Uh, his father, for all his father's faults, he, he also made sure that the, the children uh, received education. His father had been born a serf. Chekhov's grandfather had, had been a serf, but a kind of slave-driving serf and had bought himself and his family out of serfdom uh, when Chekhov's father was maybe 15 or 16. So the children complained about the father, but when they met the grandfather, they saw why their father was kind of difficult. He was not the monster that their grandfather was on that side. On his mother's side, he was very proud of his Ukrainian background. Mm. Uh, One of her parents was Ukrainian. So sometimes biographers wind up hating their subject. How did you feel about Chekhov after spending so much time with him? Was there anything that surprised you about what you learned during your period immersed in these two years? You you asked me earlier about Tolstoy, and it's I found him mysterious. Yeah. And I, I'm still embarrassed to say no. But with Chekhov, after uh, reading everything that he wrote in these years, I'd say he's still mysterious uh, to me. Yeah. He's still elusive. The things that I discovered about him were kind of about him and not kind of into him. I was surprised uh, by the money problems. I was surprised by learning that he was writing like a journalist, which he had no, he was happy to be a, a journalist, writing to the season and to the date. There's only one little gap in his in his story, and only one place where letters of his seem to have disappeared, and those relate to a depression he had, a real depression in the late summer of 87 and early fall 87. And he responded to his depression by deciding, I'm going to write a play. And so he wrote a full-length play in two weeks with a few days off. And he also started a novel. So he was, I think he responded to trouble by working harder, more, trying something different. Yeah. And that, that was a surprise. 
Right. So I wonder, I mean, I think of Tolstoy as being, writing anyways, as being like a god. And I think of of Chekhov as being more like a saint. Maybe we can say that it's easier sometimes to know God than it is to truly understand a saint. That's very good. I think you should say that. <laughs> okay. The book is called Chekhov Becomes Chekhov. Bob Blaisdell, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, or as some might say, this little ep. A wee ep, as they call it in Scotland. Un episodino, as my Italian friends might say, or might not. I hope you enjoyed it. Boy, do I miss Chekhov. Check out Bob's book, Chekhov Becoming Chekhov, and be sure to check out Chekhov, too. There are a bunch of episodes in our archives if you want to begin that way, including The Lady with the Little Dog. That was a a Mike Palindrome episode. And Gusev. And a whole month we devoted to Chekhov's plays. And Gooseberries. We've got one of that. Several other stories and episode topics. Just search for History of Literature Chekhov in your favorite podcast app and watch the goodies come rolling in. Speaking of which, we've got some goodies rolling in for the rest of this year and beyond. We have a visit from three guests at once. That's a first for us here. Three guests who co-wrote a book about World War II and the women nurses working in the Philippines. That is a fun one. Kafka and his diaries are on our horizon, people. And Goethe and Margaret Fuller, oh yes, and Elizabeth Bishop. Ida B. Wells will be here in spirit anyway, so let's get cracking. Christmas cracking. Bookspine cracking. Jack with an E. Cracking. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.